invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 24. I want to look this morning at uh, some more of a passage that we looked at a little bit a couple of weeks ago. This is um, among several post-resurrection appearances uh, recorded in the Gospels. And so I encourage you to begin with me at verse 36. Uh, as we read this together, it's, it's just good to be reminded that there is more here than just black words on a white page. It's good to be reminded that while Luke was very much in this process of recording these things from the life and ministry of Jesus, uh, the Lord God stands behind this word. This is his word. And I encourage you to hear it as his word and, and to listen for his voice. You have to pay attention to mine. Mine can be a distraction. But I really encourage you that you listen for the voice of Jesus whose word this is. So let's read together. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, thank you for this uh, passage. I thank you for how rich it is. And uh, I especially thank you that because of the things you say and do here, your folk, your people, your children, your sons and daughters, we who are here assembled, uh, we can have comfort. And I pray that by your spirit, you'd impart that comfort and that encouragement to your people. We come with all kinds of stuff, Lord. You know it. Um, Break through the stuff and, uh, and speak words of peace to our hearts, we pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Um, again, we've been looking at these post-resurrection appearances, and um, there are several of them. This passage, Luke 24, is uh, we're still the first day of Easter here. We've sort of jumped around a little bit, but... Luke 24, this is still the first day of Easter, the first Easter day. It's Resurrection Day. And what's really great about this passage, uh, what I think is really, really wonderful about this passage, is the very tender way that Jesus, the risen Savior, interacts with his people, with his disciples. Um, there are lots of words, I suppose, that could, could be used to sort of characterize this exchange. Um, but tenderness is one of them, kindness is one of them, sensitivity is one of them, patience is one of them. In just multiple ways, you, you see the patience of Jesus. And what Jesus wants for his disciples uh, comes out of his mouth when he first speaks to them. He wants peace for them. He, he wants peace. Peace be to you. Peace. He wants peace for his disciples. Um, I hope you understand, and I, I hope you'll uh, believe me when I say that Jesus 
wasn't just interested in peace for those folks, but he's interested in peace for you and me. He's interested in peace for you and me. I've been reading, as some of you have, many of you have, this really good book by Ed Welch called Running Scared, Fear, Worry, and the Rest of God, meaning not the balance of God. You know, here's part of God and here's the rest of God. But the rest, the, the, the peace, the shalom, the tranquility, everything that is a part of that shalom and that peace and that tranquility. It's really a great book. I've got copies of it ordered. Uh, we've been looking at some of it on Sunday evenings. Just uh, they'll be there for you to pick up if you want to get a copy of it because a lot of you are afraid, as am I. And one of the things that Ed Welch points out in this book is that there is a command in the Bible that is the most often repeated command in the Bible, and that command appears over 300 times, and it is the command, do not be afraid, which is a sort of a negative way of stating the positive thing that Jesus is saying here, which is be at peace. Do not be afraid, but be at peace. Now think about your own fears. Think about your own fears. Things that rob you of peace. You can get at it uh, in a couple of ways. Think about what you think about when you are awake at 3 o'clock in the morning. Think about what you think about when you're awake at 3 o'clock in the morning. Or think about what you think about when your mind just wanders because it isn't occupied by something else. A child, your health, dear friend who worships with us in this congregation, Carolina, a dear friend of the refuge, learned that her father died Saturday morning tragically. Yeah, that stuff stinks. Think about your fears. Maybe it's the economy. Maybe it's a relationship. You know, some estrangement, some, something like that, or some disappointment. Or, or maybe it's a failure of some kind, a character flaw, a repeated failure, right? A repeated character flaw. Why can't I get over that? Think about your fears. And maybe it's doubts. Maybe you have doubts. How do I know? What if, what if I've believed in vain? J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says that as a Christian, you're really asked to take quite a lot on faith. What if you're wrong? You, you, you know, fears, doubts, uncertainties. Is faith reasonable? What do I do with my doubts? Well, here Jesus meets with his disciples, and they are disturbed. They are being robbed of their peace. They're plagued by doubts. John tells us two times in in the 20th chapter of his gospel that these disciples, two different times, verse 19 and verse 26, tells us two times that these followers of Jesus had locked themselves in a room. The doors were locked. Why? Because of their fear of the Jews. Their peace had been stolen away. Their master was dead. He had been persecuted. He had been tortured. He had been flayed on a cross. He was dead. They'd heard rumors about things, but they were still afraid. They couldn't believe it. Women had come to him. Can't trust women. Women's 
testimony is not allowed in Jewish courts or Roman courts. You dismiss it out of hand. Peter and John went to the grave. The grave was empty, but they still didn't have an explanation. They didn't believe it, and they were afraid. And Jesus comes and stands in the midst of them. He stands among them. And in three different ways, Jesus wants to convey to them that they can be at peace. You can be at peace. You can be at peace. First, you can be at peace concerning his person. You can be at peace concerning himself, concerning Jesus. Second, you can be, con- you can be at peace concerning your doubts. This is a wonderful thing. You can be at peace concerning your doubts. And finally, you can be at peace concerning the future. You can be at peace concerning Jesus. You can be at peace concerning your doubts. And you can be at peace concerning the future. What do I mean first by we can be at peace concerning Jesus himself? What do I mean by this? Well, Jesus intends for you to be at peace as he approaches you, as he comes to you, as he meets with you. That's what he does in Luke 24, verse 36. As they were talking about these things, everything that they had heard, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself came and stood among them. They've heard all of these reports. The two guys Jesus met with on the road to Emmaus, they went on to Emmaus. Jesus went with them. They sat down. They had dinner with Jesus. When Jesus broke bread and gave it to them, their eyes were open. They saw Jesus. They recognized him, and he vanished. He disappeared. Strange thing. He disappeared. But they got up immediately and went back to Jerusalem. The text tells us that it was late in the day when they finally got to Emmaus, which means that it's into the evening and now dark when they're making their way back to Jerusalem. So these two disciples come back. They find the eleven which is a formal designation for the apostles. It's not something that necessarily has numerical significance or value. It's a designation. It's like they found the apostles, the 11. And these two who had gone with Jesus to Emmaus came back and they found the disciples and they're talking about all of these things and suddenly Jesus stands in the midst of them. And they're frightened. Now, yes, why are they frightened? Well, They're probably frightened for the obvious reason. It's happened to you, right? You think you're you're in the house alone, and suddenly somebody's there. Happened the other day. Barb was in the house alone. The radio was on. I came in through the garage door after work, you know, parked the car, came in the house. She comes out of the the bedroom. She doesn't know I'm there, and she gasps because she didn't expect me to be there. You do it with your kids. You hide behind a door. Right? Everybody likes to be scared a little bit. So you hide behind the door. Boom! You skip. You know, you can understand that they were frightened initially just because there was somebody there that they didn't expect to be there, and then suddenly he's there. Boom. But I, I want to suggest to you that maybe there's a little bit more that's going on here as Jesus comes into the room, comes into the midst of them. I want to suggest to you that this is is Jesus now raised from the dead, no longer clothed in a mortal body. Paul tells us in Romans that when Jesus came into the world, 
He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, not suggesting that Jesus was sinful. This is such an encouraging thing. It's so much at the center of the Christian gospel. When Jesus came into the world, what Paul is saying is that he took to himself a nature just like yours, with all of the properties that are associated with a nature like yours. Real flesh, real bone, and real weakness and frailty. Now don't, I'm not a heretic here, okay? I'm not saying something untrue. I'm, I'm simply reflecting what the scriptures say. He took a real nature to himself, a real human nature. Why did he do it? So that he could identify with you in the midst of your sufferings. Hebrews is filled with this. I used to think that Hebrews was a book about the preeminence of Jesus. I think that still. But frankly, I think it's more about suffering and the fact that Jesus endured those sufferings so that we would have a path to walk following him. Right? He took a body and nature to himself. He knew what it was like to be hungry. He fell asleep in the back of a boat. Mark chapter 4. He was so exhausted from his ministry. He knows what it's like to be weak and tired and frail. That's Jesus who took to himself a body in the likeness of sinful flesh. He never sinned. He never, as you and I do so frequently, at least I do, maybe you don't, you can be of some help to me. He never gave in, caved in, succumbed to the temptations and the weakness and the frailties of the flesh, but he carried it around. He knows what it is to be weak and frail and tired. But here... He's on the other side of being weak and tired and frail. His body that was in the likeness of sinful flesh has now become immortal. It is imperishable. He is clothed now with a body that is no longer subject to those things. Where am I going? What am I getting at in this? When Jesus appeared in the room, they had good reason to be afraid. Because this is now one who is dead, is alive, and is clothed at some level, I think in some respects, in glory. He is now a risen, glorious Savior. Jesus were to walk into the room right now. I've said this to you before. If Jesus were to walk into the room right now, clothed in the glory of immortality, not one person would be seated in a chair. You'd duck. You'd run for cover. This is somebody who is now transformed and changed, not temporarily as he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, but someone who has been brought back from death to life and is now clothed in the glory of immortality. Maybe not the fully resplendent glory of God as he is seated in the heavenly realms, but he is now the glorified Savior. And they're afraid. They're startled, the text says, and they're afraid in his presence. And they don't know what they're dealing with. They're, they're looking at something that is markedly different. The text says, Jesus, as he responds to them, says, spirits don't have what I have. I've got flesh and bone. You see, Jesus perceives that they think he's something other than a human being who was hiding in the corner and now appears. Now, here's the thing. When the pure and the perfect and the holy, when the righteous and glorious walks into the room, 
what do you become immediately aware of? Some of you know I play golf. I got to tell you, I hate, I hate being introduced as a pastor when I'm on the golf course. Because invariably what people say is, what do they say? Oh, we got to watch our language. We got to be careful, you know, and I gently, graciously, carefully say, I'm not the audience. I'm like you, clothed in the same weakness and frailty that you're clothed in. I'm not the audience. But you see how people respond when they come into the presence of what they think is holy, even if he isn't, which I am not. That's why I wear a black robe, not a white robe. That's what's going on in this text. At some level, beyond simply being startled, they know they're dealing with someone who is markedly different from them, robed, clothed in immortality. And I love, I love how Jesus speaks to them. The first words out of his mouth. And friends, they would be the first words out of his mouth if he were to walk into this room and, and be resplendent. His words would be the same. Peace be to you. Peace be to you. I know you're conscious of your weakness. I know you're conscious of your frailty. I know you're conscious of your unrighteousness. I know you're conscious of your sin. I know you're conscious of your unworthiness. Peace be to you. Peace be to you. That's what Jesus says when he draws near to his people. That's what his heart is full of as he draws near to his people, those who have trust entrusted themselves to him. Peace be to you. Don't be afraid. Peace be to you. Now, how can we say that? Well, we can say that because of where we are. We can say that because we're on the other side of Easter. We can say that because Jesus, pure, perfect, and undefiled, has given himself so that though you are impure, imperfect, and very much defiled, you can be in the presence of the one who is pure and perfect and undefiled and be embraced by him because he in grace and mercy has given you his perfection, his purity, his righteousness. We probably ought to make the point, I ought to just explain how it is that we can say that Jesus, when he comes into the room, speaks peace to you. I mean, this is Jesus raised from the dead, literally physically present with his disciples. Jesus is not literally physically present with you, his disciples. How does he come to you? How does he speak peace to you? Does he do it? He absolutely does. He absolutely does. We're after Easter. We're after the Ascension. We are here right now. We're after Pentecost. We're after the fulfillment of the promise. Jesus promised his disciples in John 14 that he would send another comforter. He would send another comforter. You need to know in the text that the word that is translated in every version of your Bibles for another that word in the original language doesn't mean simply a replacement. 
You lost one, you get another. No, no, no. The word describes one that is the exact replication of the one being replaced. The exact replication. So when Christ pours out His Spirit upon the church, when He sends the Holy Spirit, when the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit into the midst of the church, I say this often, and I say it because I get the feeling sometimes that people's theology of the Holy Spirit conforms to this idea. The Holy Spirit is not a free agent out there acting on His own. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Father and the Son who makes His approach in their behalf, in their name, and who comes to you as people. And when He comes, He comes with the same words that Jesus comes with. Peace be to you in the midst of your fears and doubts and uncertainties. Peace be to you. You don't see Him. I don't see Him. That's why when we come to worship or when we come to the Scriptures or we come to a Bible study, it's so critically important that we pray. You say, Lord, I'm coming into this physical place. I'm going to sit on physical chairs. Someday I'm going to sit in a temperature-regulated sanctuary. (laughs) But the most important thing in that temperature-regulated sanctuary is not the temperature. It is the presence of Jesus in the midst of His people who comes to you as people and says, Peace be to you, don't be afraid. And He comes in the presence of and the power of His Spirit. So when Jesus comes, you can be at peace. When He approaches you, you can be at peace because the first words on His lips are peace. Peace be to you. Second, we can be at peace concerning our doubts. This is deeply encouraging, I think. Verse 38, He said to them, Why are you troubled and why did doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. Jesus speaks to their doubts. Jesus perceives that they have doubts. Jesus, as he speaks to them, as he addresses them, as he comes into their midst, he doesn't say, I'm really disappointed in you people. Now look, Jesus is forever correcting us. He does rebuke the disciples sometimes. But when he comes into the midst of the disciples, he understands that they have what John Calvin calls, this is a great word, perturbations. You ever been perturbed? It means to be agitated. It means to be troubled. It means to be be nervous and uncertain. Perturbations. When Jesus comes into the midst of the eleven, into the midst of the apostles, he knows they have doubts. And frankly, he knows they have good reason for doubt. I don't know if you have doubts this morning. I don't know if you have doubts about all of this Christianity stuff. You know, poor doubting Thomas seems to be criticized and even chastised in sermons and in hymns. Because he wanted evidence. You know, he wanted proof. Well, Thomas wasn't the only one who wanted evidence and wanted proof. The others did too. Was Thomas here? It doesn't look like it. It looks like he either was, he didn't get the memo, you know, he didn't get the email and he wasn't at the meeting. Or it could be, you know, we don't know, 
We know that he wasn't there because John's gospel tells us that he wasn't. Could be that these two guys from Emmaus come and they say, it really is true. And Thomas says, I got to go get some dinner. I've been hearing this all day and I'm not buying it. You know, we don't know. The point is that Thomas wasn't the only one who had doubts. All of them had doubts. At some level, they were uncertain about this whole thing, and Jesus does not dismiss them because of their doubts. I just I want to say to you this morning, if you have doubts, welcome to the club. If you have questions, welcome to the club. If this all seems extravagant and bizarre and unbelievable, welcome to the club. That's Thomas. That's the disciples. That's virtually anybody who has wrestled with these things. As J.I. Packer says, the Christian faith asks quite a lot of you when it asks you to believe some of the things you're asked to believe. You're asked to believe that a man who was certifiably dead, who certifiably lived before being dead, was certifiably entombed, and on the third day after he was dead, he was alive again. You're asked to believe that the one who was certifiably dead, placed in that tomb, and who was alive again, was God incarnate, God taking to himself a nature like yours, fully God, fully man, lying in a manger, a little feeding trough, that that baby lying in the manger and that conceptus before birth was actually God. Whoa. You're being asked to believe quite a lot. The question is whether or not it is reasonable to believe the things you're being asked to believe. And Jesus stands in the midst of his disciples and says, my hands, my feet, my side. And he goes beyond that and says, is there anything here to eat? And he eats fish with them. The question isn't, do you have doubts? Everybody has doubts. The question is, is it reasonable to believe these things? There are two kinds of doubt, it seems to me. There's the kind of doubt that emerges. Listen and just make a note of this. There's the kind of doubt that emerges from an exaggerated estimate of human ability. There is that kind of doubt. It's the kind of doubt that presupposes certain things about human beings. It's the kind of doubt which basically says, to use a phrase that somebody coined, man is the measure of all things. If I can't measure it, if I can't feel it, if I can't weigh it, if I can't see it, if it doesn't fit my understanding of what is or could be real, if I can't comprehend it, it isn't true. Now that's a dangerous kind of doubt. The kind of doubt that emerges from those presuppositions. It's a dangerous kind of doubt because it clearly exposes a person to an inevitable inconsistency. Hang with me on this. What's the inevitable inconsistency? How do you measure love? How do you measure virtue? How do you measure courage? 
How do you account for the fact that in every civilization across all of human, human history, virtues have been applauded, vices have been recognized as vices, things like courage and love and those sorts of things have all been recognized. How do you measure those things? And you see, what happens is that everybody starts living in terms of those things. Everybody says there are certain things to be valued that can't be measured, that can't be weighed, and that frankly can't be fully understood, at least not in terms of simple biology, physical processes, neurology, and all of the rest. And so everybody who would say, I'm not going to believe it's really true unless I can weigh it or measure it, becomes inconsistent because you end up living for, desiring, and pursuing those things that can't be measured. You know what I'm talking about? Happiness, joy, peace, contentment. Measure those things. Weigh them. You can't. And so that kind of doubt leads a person inevitably to some terrible inconsistencies and, frankly, hypocrisies. But there's another kind of doubt. There's another sort of doubt, and it's the kind of doubt that leads to understanding the kind of doubt that, in fact, seeks understanding. Look, the disciples are locked in a room someplace, and suddenly somebody else is in the room with them. The doors are locked, and suddenly somebody else is in the room with them. Barb and I were walking on the beach last night. She said, do you think we'll have the ability to do that, just go through doors and stuff? And I said, I'm not sure, because you've got to remember Jesus is still fully God and fully man. He has properties and abilities that you and I don't have. I'm not sure that we're going to be able to pass through walls. He did. He could. And when something like that happens, it raises questions. If that back door opened back there and my father came teetering, toddling through that back door, leaning on his walker, that would raise some questions in my mind. For those of you who don't know, my 83-year-old father died February 26th. If he appeared back there, that would raise questions. But do you just dismiss it out of hand, or do the questions lead you to deeper understanding? And that's what happens here with the disciples. They are led to a greater, deeper understanding. They are invited to see and to touch the evidence, and Jesus was not offended a week later when Thomas shows up in the room and asks for the same evidence. He says to Thomas, see and touch and feel and believe. And Thomas did. Doubt that truly seeks understanding will find the evidence sufficient for belief. Doubt that seeks understanding will find the evidence sufficient for belief. The question is, will the doubter, and this gets at the real heart of the difference between the kinds of doubt. The question is, will the doubter be prepared to do what Thomas did and fall down and say, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. The true doubter who is seeking understanding will be inclined and disposed to fall down and say, my Lord and my God. But all too often people do not fall down 
and worship and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and God. Frankly and honestly, because they are predisposed not to. And to quote G.K. Chesterton again, I think G.K. Chesterton is right. Chesterton says, in too many cases, it is not the case that Christianity has been tried and found wanting, but rather that Christianity has been found hard and not tried. If you have doubts this morning, if you wonder about this, I invite you to examine the evidence. The evidence is sufficient for belief. It was for the 11. It was for Thomas. It was for Greeks and Romans who were suspicious of bodily resurrection. And it's sufficient for us. So then the third thing, and you'll be glad to know that I'm not late because I want to look at this in more detail next week. So you get to come back next week. Jesus wants us to be at peace concerning himself. Jesus wants us to be at peace concerning our doubts. And Jesus wants us to be at peace concerning the future. And here's the down payment on next week's sermon. The resurrection is itself a down payment. The resurrection is a snapshot of the direction in which history is proceeding. History is proceeding in the direction of the final, glorious renovation and restoration of all things. Jesus' resurrection, being brought back from death to life, is only a foreshadowing of what God is going to do at the end of history when he overcomes death fully and finally, restores, renews, renovates, and out of that restoration and renewal, and renovation emerge the new heaven and the new earth with you in your new, restored, renewed, renovated bodies to dwell in it forever. That's what's over the horizon. You've got a down payment of it behind you, and you've got the promise and hope of it out there in the future. So what does Jesus do for his disciples? He gives them peace. Peace concerning his own presence in their midst. Peace concerning their doubts. And peace concerning the future, giving them a great hope. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you that you are alive. Thank you that you are here among us. Thank you that though we can't see you, you say in your word, to Thomas and to all of us, that we who never see but yet believe are more blessed even than he. So, O Lord, may the blessing of your peace be upon your people and particularly as we come to this, your table, to celebrate our salvation full and total as we see it in you. Be with us, we pray, in your name. Amen.